Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Stories uh, in the Bible, I believe, found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35 through 45. Mark, chapter 1, verse 35 through 45. The kingdom of God marches on. But the touching story that we come across is that of the healing of a man with leprosy. And so Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 35 and reading through verse 45, which will bring us to the end of our study of Mark chapter 1, which we've been in for quite some time. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on. Uh, to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. Since I met this blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, I will never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity rolls. He touched me. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Those words were penned in 1963, almost 50 years ago, by Bill Gaither. And uh, those words have thrilled literally millions of people as they have reflected upon the fact that they had to experience the wonderful, healing, saving touch of Jesus in their life. I suspect that uh, the story before us this evening probably inspired uh, the writing of that psalm because here we encounter a man with leprosy who experienced the healing touch of Jesus and was indeed made whole. And by that touch of Jesus and by this healing that accompanies the casting out of demons and healings that are about to come, we understand very clearly that God's kingdom is moving forward. Uh, God's kingdom, if you like, is marching on. Jesus has just had an incredible day. If you look at the verses immediately preceding our text this evening, uh, he's been teaching the scriptures. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. And all of this was done on the Sabbath or immediately 
following the Sabbath. In other words, the text reveals to us that he has gone late into the night healing the hurting and he has been ministering to them. And yet there's more that needs to be done as the kingdom moves forward against the powers of darkness and uh, the forces of evil. And so a question that we raise tonight as we examine this text, by what means does God's kingdom advance? Uh, what are the essential weapons in God's arsenal that he is going to employ that will see that his kingdom moves on? We're going to see tonight in this particular text three in particular that are found. And I think it is interesting to note that sandwiched or bracketed, if you like, between a couple of miracle healing stories are two other things that could be overlooked because they're just mentioned in kind of a passing way. And yet we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark these things are absolutely essential to the advance of the kingdom. One of those being prayer and the other being preaching. And so prayer and preaching are going to be twin uh, weapons that God uses to advance his kingdom. And we see both of these exhibited very clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing our text teaches us this evening in verses 35 through 37 is the kingdom advances through prayer. Verse 35 of chapter 1 begins now rising very early in the morning. You might be tempted to ask just how early was it? Well, he tells us while it was still dark. And so early in the morning, the sun has not yet come up. The Bible says he departed and went out to a desolate place. That's the same word, by the way, that speaks earlier of where Jesus went when he was tempted by Satan. Interestingly, it'll be the closing phrase of this particular section that we're going to look at. So uh, Jesus begins in a desolate place. And he will end in a desolate place. The first by his own choosing, the other because of the disobedience of the leper. And so the text says that he gets up very early, he departs to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In other words, even though he had been up late the night before, Jesus needed this time of fellowship. He needed this time of spiritual restoration as he communed with his father. And so getting up very early, going out alone, the Bible says he knelt there and he prayed. It's interesting. Uh, prayers are not all that prominent in Mark's gospel, and yet there are three of them that stand out, especially in terms of when they occur as to the context. Of course, we're looking at the first one right here in chapter 1, verse 35, at the beginning of the gospel and the beginning of his ministry in Galilee as he is making clear what kind of Messiah he is going to be and what kind of ministry he is going to conduct. Uh, the second prayer we find of Jesus found in the middle of the gospel after he has fed the 5,000. And John chapter 6, verse 15 helps us out here because there we are informed that, be, be, that following that miracle, that the people wanted to take him by force and make him king. And yet we know that that is not why he came in terms of their uh, messianic expectations to conquer Rome and to restore the glory of Israel's kingdom. And so he prays at the beginning as he's defining his ministry. He prays in the middle as he is having to deal with the crowd and their misunderstanding of who he is. And then finally, there is a prayer at the conclusion of the gospel. And not surprising here, it is the prayer of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, verse 32 through verse 42. It's interesting, all three prayers take place at a critical moment in his ministry, in his life. Secondly, the setting for his prayer in each instance is in darkness. Every time, and it's in solitude, uh, he is alone. 
And all three situations then in some sense recall allusions to the wilderness experience of Israel. And they remind us again of the cosmic conflict that is taking place and raging in unseen places. You know, we see what's going on in this text uh, from a human perspective. But I suspect that when we get to heaven and the veil is pulled back and we see exactly what was going on in the wilderness when he was tempted... What is going on now as the crowds are beginning to follow him and, and the momentum is building? Uh, as we consider the challenge and indeed the temptation to go ahead and receive the accolades of the people as the king of Israel. After all, that is what, uh, what who he is. And then finally at the garden where, yes, he is there and all oh, the disciples are there, but they're asleep. So basically he is there again at night, uh, alone. And who can imagine what is going on in the spiritual realm? We, we cannot, except to say that there certainly was a major spiritual conflict raging each of the times that our Lord finds himself seeking his Father in prayer. If Jesus needed to find the solitude of prayer for strength and restoration, how much more is that true for you and for me? If the Son of God needed to commune with his Father for strength, for ministry, how much more is that true for you and for me? I'll be the first to confess to you all tonight that if you were to ask me, as I do a little self-evaluation, what is the weakest area of my spiritual life, I I would have to say to my shame, uh, it's my prayer life. It's a battle for me. Maybe it is for some of you. Uh, I struggle. Uh, I'm not as consistent uh, in this area as I ought to be. I, I am indeed uh, embarrassed and shamed when I think about the fact that our Lord has worked all day, late into the night, healing people, casting out demons. I mean, after all, it seems to me that if, uh, if it, was, it was the next day, he would have slept in a little bit, maybe taken a little more R&R, but no, he's up before everybody else is up. In fact, as we're about to see, they don't know where he is. They have to send out a search party to locate him. But the odds are, if you can't find Jesus in the Gospels, go out to a desolate place and look for a man with his knees on the ground and his face before his father, and there you'll find Jesus. If Jesus saw the need of prayer, how much more should you and I see that as well? Well, he has left uh, early. Uh, he's out there praying. And verse 36 informs us that Simon, that is Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. And verse 37 says, they found him and they said to him, everyone <clears throat> is looking for you. Uh, the words almost have the sense of a rebuke there. Everyone's looking for you. In other words, what are you doing out here? Uh, this is not where you should be, out here uh, in a desolate place alone. I mean, have you forgotten what was going on yesterday? Big crowd in the synagogue. Big crowd at uh, my mother-in-law's house. Uh, no doubt there'll be bigger crowds today. The word is spreading rapidly. Uh, uh, we're building a movement. We've got momentum by uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, next week, a month from now. We may have thousands following us. What are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. In other words, Peter, in essence, is saying you don't have time to pray. We don't have time to pray. There's too many things for us to be about the business of doing. And again, I'm rebuked because I am by my very nature an activist. 
Uh, I get things done. I get things done in a hurry. Uh, I drive fast. I return emails fast. I return all correspondence fast. I, I'm just constantly, that's just the way I'm wired. And, and in essence, Danny Aiken would have to confess, sometimes I'm just so busy I don't have time to pray. But Luther said it very well. No, we're so busy, we don't have time not to pray. And the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God advances with and through prayer. But secondly, it also tells us that the kingdom of God advances through preaching. Verse 38, he said to him, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Wait a minute, time out. Uh, Jesus, are you ignoring Peter? No, I'm just telling Peter, buzz off. Uh, I'm not going back. It doesn't matter that the crowds are in this particular town. I'm going to another town and then another town and then another town because I did not come to tickle the fancies of the crowds. I did not come to meet their whims and their wishes. I did not come to put on spectacular displays that would make them happy. I came to preach. That's why God called me out. That's why God set me apart as his son via the incarnation. And so verse 39 says he went throughout all Galilee doing what? Preaching in their synagogues. And he also went out casting demons. In other words, he says to Peter, let's move on. Let's go to the next town. I will preach there also. This is why I came. Yes, they may have come looking for Jesus, but they came for the wrong reasons. They came looking for miracles. We have seen no evidence at this point that upon hearing him preach, they were repenting and believing the gospel and welcoming the kingdom. That was not on their radar screen. And, you know, I become very much aware of the fact that in the day and age in which we live, and we have to be careful, we're just as susceptible to this. Uh, we're fine with a Jesus that we create. We're fine with a Jesus to our liking. Uh, we're fine with a Jesus who meets our needs and makes us feel good. That, by the way, is not the Jesus of the Bible. And rather than have a Jesus of our making, we need to seek a Jesus who is revealed in the Scriptures. Bottom line, the crowds don't really understand why he has come. The disciples don't really understand why he has come. But Jesus understands why he has come. He came to preach. He came to herald. He came to proclaim the gospel of salvation. A message that we will find in Mark's gospel is by him. It is about him. Indeed, it has been well said. He is the very embodiment of the gospel. In other words, the gospel moved forward in the first century by preaching. Question. How will the gospel move forward in the 21st century? Answer. By preaching. Preaching. Undergirded by prayer will be the means whereby God will advance his kingdom. One man said it well. God had only one son and he made him a preacher. I like to add, uh, yes, he had only one son. He made him a missionary preacher, a missionary theologian preacher, a missionary theologian evangelistic preacher. But yes, he did make him a preacher. For those of you that are here tonight that God has called into the ministry, that are now students at our college or our seminary, let me just be very blunt with you. No pastor is worthy of the name who does not preach the word. And no church will prosper spiritually without the preaching of the word. And no Christian will, will grow and mature spiritually apart from the teaching of the word of God. 
John Stott, that uh, wonderful Anglican evangelical, says it very well. Christianity is, in its essence, a religion of the Word of God. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it so well. Let us consider it certain and conclusively established that the soul can do without all things except the Word of God. And that where this is not, there is no help for the soul in anything else, whatever. So the Bible says Jesus went throughout all of Galilee preaching the gospel, casting out demons, and he did this out of a life on his knees in intimate fellowship with his Father in prayer. So the kingdom advances through prayer. The kingdom advances through preaching. But thirdly, and this is kind of the heart of this passage, the kingdom advances through cleansing. This we see in verses 40 through 45. As he was traveling, Jesus comes across a man that the Bible says is a leper. Now, for those of you that have grown up in church uh, uh, all of your life, you may have some familiarity with the issue of leprosy, although the fact is most people have a misunderstanding, even who grew up in the church, as to what leprosy is. Because most people, when they think of the word leprosy, they think of the modern disease, which is called Hansen's disease. Uh, where there are huge uh, sores that develop on people's body, and even sometimes the fingernails will begin to drop off, the toenails will drop off. Sometimes it's even said that the limbs become so brittle that they can break, and uh, therefore these people are often confined uh, away from the rest of society, and they are looked upon as an outcast, and it's very dangerous. And, and certainly, uh, Hansen's disease was probably one form of leprosy in the first century and in the ancient world. Uh, let me say a few things about uh, the uh, social situation of the leper, and then I'll address what the Bible seems to indicate concerning the issue of leprosy. Uh, a man who was a leper was an outcast. Uh, he was a man whom the law said is unclean, and the people uh, almost with unanimity said, here's a man cursed by God. A few years ago, it was popular for uh, some pastors in trying to illustrate this for us to say, well, you know, leprosy was the ancient world's uh, AIDS. Uh, That's not correct. Someone who has the HIV virus today is much better off than someone who contracted leprosy in the ancient world. And so what takes place here is rather startling. In fact, it's provocative and even offensive. Uh, Certainly those who are reading this for the first time would have been stunned. When they read a leper came to him, they would have all gone, No way. No way. A leper would never have come near to any person uh, who is healthy, much less someone with the reputation of Jesus. In fact, uh, we learn from the writings of the ancient world that a leper was to stay at least 50 paces from other people who did not have the disease, so that he would even come so near to Jesus that Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, could reach out and touch him unheard of. Absolutely unthinkable. He is doing the unbelievable. Now, let's talk about the disease for just a moment. It was widely known in the ancient world. It was viewed as a curse from God. Uh, Much superstition and fear surrounded uh, this thing called leprosy. The word itself 
actually would cover a number of skin diseases, including what we call Hansen's disease today. Uh, they were difficult to diagnose and even worse to heal. In fact, some say the scribes cataloged as many as 22 different uh, skin diseases that they would call leprosy. It almost like saying today, well, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my dear friend, they have cancer. They have cancer. What kind of cancer? Well, there are lots of kinds of cancers. We know many varieties of cancer. Well, my friend has leprosy. What kind? Well, there are many varieties of leprosy. So we need to understand that it's not just one particular thing that was in view here. If you have time, you can go home this evening and read the almost 110, 115, actually 120 verses in Leviticus 13 and 14 that talk both about how you diagnose leprosy according to the law uh, within religious context and then how leprosy, once it is healed, uh, is to be atoned for or to be cleansed. That is in chapter 14. And so basically we understand that leprosy was viewed as as badly, as terrible as any disease in the ancient world. In fact, no one in the Bible ever healed a leper by touching him other than Jesus. You've got leprosy, you're shunned. You've got leprosy, you're mocked. You've got leprosy, you're scorned. Many of the ancients referred to leprosy as a living death and such a person as a dead man walking. The leper had to wear torn clothes. He had to leave his hair unkept. He had to cover his face. He had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would come closer uh, than 50 paces from him. They lived in isolation, some alone, some in a leper a colony or a leper community, but they were cut off from the normal uh, course in uh, everyday life of society. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said that those who had leprosy were in no way differing from a corpse. In other words, other illnesses could be healed, but leprosy had to be both healed and cleansed. Warren Wiersbe, who for many years was the Bible teacher, the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, says of this, and I quote, When you read the test for leprosy in Leviticus 13, you can see how the disease is a picture of sin. Like sin, leprosy is deeper than the skin. It spreads. It defiles and isolates. Indeed, it renders things fit only for the fire. Anyone who has ever trusted the Savior is spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. As a quick aside before I go on, uh, I guess about five years ago, uh, Charlotte and I had the uh, honor of going to India, where with two different ministries we spent two weeks doing Bible conferences, and Charlotte shared her testimony and worked with children. And one day we were taken to, uh, to see a group of lepers. Uh, we went to a... As part of the city, and then we went behind the street, and then behind another street to like a back alley street, and there along the back alley against a wall, down the wall for maybe, I don't know, 75, 100 feet, were lepers. Uh, some of them had like a little mud-caked house that they stayed in. Others had just a little covering with a stick that they would crawl under when it would rain. Others had nothing. Uh, and yes, they had... Uh, the evidences of the disease on their external person. And let me just tell you, 
and there's nothing noble about this because it is not transmitted. This type of leprosy that we saw is not transmitted by touch. So we hugged them. We kissed them. We physically affirmed them. You see, what had happened is most of them had had children who did not have leprosy. And so they had given their children to the Christian orphanage where their children were being taken care of, where they were being educated, uh, where they were being taught not just Hindi but also English. And uh, there was a future for them. No future for these lepers. They are not allowed to mingle with the common people. Uh, in India, if you are a Dalit, you are the lowest class of people and you are deemed not much more than an animal. In fact, some animals are deemed more valuable than are you. But even the leper is viewed lower than that. And amazingly, as we began to talk and interact, I discovered that the only people who really care about our ministers, the lepers, are the Christians. You say, why? Because in the Hindu worldview of reincarnation, you come back the next time, depending upon how you live the previous time. And so if you are a leper, you deserve it. If you are a leper, you have earned that from your previous life. And so you're just getting your just desserts, your just reward. And so why should anybody reach out and care for you? But there were wonderful Christian brothers and sisters who were bringing them clothes, who daily brought them. They can't work. They can't mingle with uh, real people. And it was tragic. Both of us, when we left, just had that kind of, you know, that, that real heavy, uh, empty feeling on the inside that just is so terribly, terribly uncomfortable because you, you have a grief uh, for fellow human beings that you can't put into words. Well, that gave me just a little sense of what this man had also lived with all of his life, or at least for much of his life. And yet somehow he had heard about Jesus, I don't know how, Somehow he had found out where Jesus was, I don't know how, and he does the unspeakable and the unthinkable, and in verse 40, he came to him. He violated every convention of the day, every custom of the day, but you know what? When you're really, really desperate, you don't care about convention. You don't care about uh, what is socially appropriate behavior. And so note very quickly the, the action of the leper there as it's described in verse 40 and 41. He came, he implored, the word means to plead, uh, to ask earnestly. Thirdly, he knelt and then he spoke, if you will, you can make me clean. Wow. He doesn't say, uh, if you can, he says, if you will. He knew Jesus was able. He knew Jesus could. The issue was not could he, but would he? And so with great courage, great humility, and great faith, by the way, the same way that we as sin-sick sinners must come to our Savior, he came believing in the only one who could change his life and the only one who could make him whole. If you will, on his knees, pleading, you can make me clean. Well, the response of Jesus is found in verse 41. And it's not surprising, isn't it? Is it? Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Moved with pity. 
Some commentators say the best phrase would be moved with great compassion. He stretched out his hand. He touched him. He spoke. Be clean. And the man was clean. I've wondered when was the last time this man had been touched by anybody? Theoretically, no. Realistically, it could have been years. And yet now one steps up, puts his hand out, touches him, perhaps the most sweet touch he has ever experienced in his life, at least since he was a baby. And he hears these precious words, I am willing you be clean. And here's Mark's favorite word. We're not surprised that it shows up again, are we? Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Scandalously, surprisingly, Jesus, in compassion, not contempt, makes the unclean clean. He doesn't turn him away. He turns to him. He doesn't throw him out. He touches him. He removes his curse. He takes away his shame. He removes his defilement. And once again, we see the theme of the suffering servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, who takes upon himself our sin, our transgressions, and uh, our sicknesses, our illnesses and our suffering. I will, and Jesus made him clean. One commentator said it beautifully. The Lord Jesus is not polluted by the leper's disease when he touches him, which is how they would have understood it. Instead, uh, the leper is cleansed and he is healed by the gracious touch and, I love this phrase, the contagious holiness of the Son of God. Now, I've been thinking about this, even woke up uh, this morning, and this story, along with the next story that I've been working on, popped into my mind. Um, I wonder how the priest responded when they eventually received this report. Now, we're about to see that, uh, and it's understandable, but still not justifiable, that the leper disobeyed and it caused some real problems. But I just imagine uh, his going to the uh, priest... I suspect that none of those priests had ever seen a leper actually healed. He's now got the skin of a baby. And he says, I was healed by this man, Jesus. How did he do it? He touched me. <gasps> what did you say? He healed me. No, not that part. I don't give a rip about that part. What did you say he did? He touched me. He touched you. You say, oh, Nanny, you're being unfair to the religious leaders. They, they would have been just as impressed, maybe more impressed with the healing. I beg to differ. Next week, we'll be in chapter 2, 1 through 12, where Jesus hears the, heals the paralytic. And it will tell us that the house is filled with the scribes. And if you read the parallel count, I'll give you next week's sermon in a preview in chapter 5, verse 17 of Luke. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees had come from Galilee, Judea, and even Jerusalem. It's time to check the boy out. We're hearing things that we're not all that impressed with. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Bad. He's touching lepers. Bad. He's healing and it doesn't matter. He's breaking the religious conventions of the day. They're nothing more than a bunch of legalists. A bunch of pharisaical legalists. If you don't do it their way, then it doesn't count. It doesn't count. And again, as I will say a little bit next week and a lot the next text, we need to be ourselves 
aware of the fact that we're just as susceptible to Pharisaism and legalism as anyone else is. But the tragedy with Pharisees is they don't see their blind spots. The tragedy with legalists is they don't see their blind spots. And again, I confess I could be right there in the midst of them. So I suspect that that's probably what happened, but that's not in this text. Jesus does in verse 30, 43 and 44 that which we don't expect. Well, part of it's what we expect, but the other is really rather surprising. Look at it with me. Jesus sternly charged him, verse 43, and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, that's very surprising. We're never told in this day and age not to tell people what, what Jesus has done for us. But as we saw last week, Jesus is worried. Uh, no, that's not the way to say it. Jesus does not want them to have a faulty understanding of the kind of Messiah that he is. And if he goes out telling everybody what has happened, he again knows that it's going to uh, uh, cause great interest. There's going to be great excitement and enthusiasm. The crowds will build again. Will they build again to follow him? No. They will build again because they want to see a show. I don't tell you, there are a lot of churches in America today, they're really good at putting on a show, but they are not very good at showing you Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus doesn't want you to come to him to get something from him. Jesus wants you to come to him to get him. He wants you to come to him because you love him, because you want him, because you long for truth and for him, not because you long to see a show. He wants people to come to him to get him. See that you say nothing to anyone, verse 44, but number one, go. Number two, show yourself to the priest. And number three, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You find all of that, if you like, this evening in Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14. Well, not surprisingly... But still disobedient, the leper does not do what Jesus said. Verse 45, he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him. The search parties are coming out left and right from every quarter. Jesus says, you be quiet, but he's not quiet. And so he goes out and he says he talked freely about what Jesus had done. He talked everywhere about what Jesus had done. In fact, the text says he spread the news. The, the message says it this way. He was spreading the news all over town. And so as a result of his disobedience, the ministry of Jesus is hindered. The ministry of Jesus is somewhat negatively impacted because it says he could no longer openly enter a town. In fact, he was again led to stay in a desolate place, this time, as I said earlier, not of his own choosing, but because of the disobedience of the leper. And yet the text says people were coming to him from everywhere. As Mark will later say in chapter 7 and verse 24, so it is now already true, I love the phrase, Speaking of Jesus, he could not be hidden. Interestingly, as again, I was reflecting upon this. I saw an example or at least a, an analogy of the beauty of what we call the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes upon himself the sin and sickness of the leper. 
and winds up where? In a desolate place, alone. The leper, on the other hand, is now made whole, made clean. He is restored to his family, and he is now back with his friends. And so you have this beautiful picture of substitution where Jesus takes upon himself our sin, our sickness, and in its place, he gives us his wholeness, his help, and his forgiveness. And that's exactly what he did at the cross for you and for me. He took our shame. He took our sorrow. He took our sin. He took our illnesses, if you like. And in return, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his holiness. Some theologians have referred to this as the great exchange. I gave Jesus what is mine, my sin. He gave me what was his, his holiness. What a deal. What a deal. And so we close. The rabbi said that it was as difficult to heal the leper as it was to raise the dead. Both are clearly impossible for man, but neither is a problem for God's son. He cleanses the defiled and raises the dead by a simple touch or a simple word. As the song says, he does touch lives and makes them whole. I know he did that for me when I was a 10-year-old little boy. The question all of us ought to consider tonight is, has he also done that for me as well? He touched me and he made me whole. Precious Lord Jesus, we love you this evening. Because most, if not all of us here tonight, have experienced that marvelous, saving touch. We confess to you that we were spiritual lepers. Our bodies were racked with sin. Sin that went deep to the very depths of our soul. We could not take enough baths. We could not put on enough medicine. We could not take enough shots to heal our malady, our sickness. It was fatal. Fatal unto eternal death. And yet you graciously reached out and touched us. And when you touched us, all of that sin and all of that sickness was transferred to you. And coming back from you to us with spiritual health, wholeness, forgiveness, righteousness, we now stand before your Father and when he sees us, he sees you. You indeed have made us whole. And Lord, unlike the leper, you've not commanded us to be silent, but you commanded us to go and tell. To go and tell what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus can and will do for anyone who comes to him in faith and trust, simply saying, you alone have what I need Please give it to me. And your word says of your son that you will not cast out anyone who comes to you in that kind of a way. What a wonderful message. What a wonderful gospel we have to share. May we be faithful and be a part of helping your kingdom march on until it is realized in fullness when you come again. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, 
We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.